You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 135, The Danbury Raid. Danbury, Connecticut, was a small inland village about 20 miles from the shore. The British had largely avoided Connecticut, which was filled with patriots and did not have any strategically valuable cities. General Washington, always in need of towns near the action to serve as supply depots, thought Danbury would be a good choice. Since it was not on the coast, it would not be subject to a naval attack. Its location was close enough to the expected fighting that would take place in upstate New York later that year. It was more than a day's march from the British lines around the New York City area. Once it became a depot, of course, it did become a target for the British. As we've seen over the last two episodes in the spring of 1777, British officers were restless to begin offensive operations again. They had already raided Peekskill, New York, and Boundbrook, New Jersey. Now, Danbury, Connecticut was in their sights. Leading the expedition was General William Tryon. We, of course, have heard from General Tryon many times in our story so far. A quick refresher, although his father was not an aristocrat, Tryon had come from a good family with connections to aristocracy in Britain. He purchased a commission in 1751 and served with distinction in the Seven Years' War. His wartime exploits allowed him to rise to lieutenant colonel by the end of the war. After the war, he was able to get an appointment as lieutenant governor of North Carolina, thanks to family connections through his wife. A year later, when the North Carolina governor died, Tryon became promoted to royal governor himself. He almost immediately got into a conflict with the colonists as he attempted to enforce the Stamp Act. His conflicts with the colonists eventually led to the Battle of Alamance that I discussed back in episode 35. A few years after that, Tryon got transferred to New York, where as royal governor of that colony, he got into even more conflicts. He took a hard line against the land dispute in the eastern part of the colony. In doing so, he attempted to capture and execute the Green Mountain Boys, who were active in that region, as we covered in episode 38. Governor Tryon had to return to London in 1774. When he came back to New York in 1775, he found that politics had become so poisoned in the New York colony that he had to live aboard ship in New York Harbor. Patriots had taken over New York City. When the British recaptured New York in 1776, General Howe kept the city under martial law, leaving little for Tryon to do as governor. 
although he remained the nominal royal governor of the colony, Tryon returned to his military roots to be of more use. He helped to raise a loyalist militia and received a temporary commission as brigadier general. In spring 1777, Howe gave him a temporary commission as major general of the provincials in preparation for his new mission. Along with Tryon, General Howe assigned two other brigadier generals with more regular army experience to support the raid. General James Agnew had arrived in Boston as lieutenant colonel a few months after Lexington and Concord. I haven't really been able to find much information about Agnew before he came to America in 1775. His grandfather was a baronet, but his father made the mistake of not being born first and did not inherit title or lands. His father did get a military commission, rising to the rank of major, and James followed in his father's path by joining the army. As I said, I haven't been able to find his military records, but having risen to lieutenant colonel without having lots of family money or political connections must have meant that he was a pretty impressive officer. Agnew did not get much chance for distinction in America until the Battle of Long Island a year after he arrived. Sometime after that, he was promoted to brigadier general and assigned command of his own brigade. The third general for the mission was William Erskine. Like Agnew, he had a grandfather with a title, in this case a Scottish lord and peer. Also like Agnew, his father had the problem of an older brother getting the family title and land. Erskine's father did manage to get a gig as deputy governor of Blackness Castle in Scotland. He also had a military career rising to colonel. Erskine joined his father's regiment at the age of 14 in time to serve in both the War of Austrian Succession as well as the Seven Years' War. For his service, Erskine rose to lieutenant colonel by the end of the Seven Years' War and received a knighthood as well. He shipped out to America as a staff officer with General Clinton in early 1776. After the Battle of Long Island, Erskine perhaps realized that Clinton's feud with General Howe meant that serving under Clinton meant being sidelined in unimportant posts. He got himself transferred to serve as Lord Cornwallis's quartermaster. Erskine accompanied Cornwallis to Trenton after the Americans captured the town. He developed a reputation as a fierce fighter during the Forage War in New Jersey over the winter. Erskine was not in agreement with General Howe's view of treating rebels decently. He developed a reputation of engaging in fierce combat and taking no prisoners. In April 1777, about the same time General Cornwallis was preparing his raid on Boundbrook, Generals Tryon, Agnew, and Erskine prepared for their own raid against Connecticut. Earlier, General Howe had received intelligence about the supply depot at Danbury from an Indian agent, Guy Johnson. It would take at least two or three days to march British soldiers from their lines at New York City and another two or three days to march back. That would give the Patriots too much time to react and organize an attack on the column. So instead, they opted to cross the Long Island Sound, land at Norwalk, Connecticut, and try to make a one-day march to Danbury from there. 
Although General Tryon was really supposed to be the head of a provincial army, the British were not really ready to trust the provincial forces with this raid. Howe deployed about 1,500 regulars drawn from seven different regiments and another 300 or so provincials from the Prince of Wales American Regiment led by Montfort Brown. You may recall that Brown was governor of the Bahamas, captured during the Continental Navy's raid there in March 1776. He had been exchanged for captured Continental General Lord Sterling and was now a colonel commanding a regiment of Loyalist provincials. Overall, though, Howe had probably 3,000 provincials under his command at this time. The fact that he sent only 300 on this raid to supplement the 1,500 regulars indicates the typical preference to rely on regulars as much as possible. With support, the entire British contingent numbered over 2,000. They used 12 transport ships to bring the soldiers across Long Island Sound along with a hospital ship and a number of other smaller ships. Long Island Sound, the waterway between Long Island and Connecticut, had been a problem for some time. Patriot raids across the water from Connecticut had been a regular headache for the British. Also, the British had fostered a black market trade across the Sound, trading hard currency and manufactured goods for food and raw materials. This trade was not allowed by either side, but since the British needed the supplies, they tolerated it. The trade also led to a group of outlaws and pirates in the area that controlled much of the coast. Any British raid would have to be a large one, if only to prevent smaller groups of soldiers from getting attacked by criminal gangs. On April 22nd, the fleet left New York City. The British sent another fleet up the Hudson River as a diversionary force to confuse the Americans. If the British hoped the movement by sea would be faster than marching to Connecticut, they would be disappointed. The fleet sailed up the East River to Hellgate on the edge of Long Island Sound on the first day. There, the troops waited aboard ship for two days for strong headwinds to shift in the right direction. They finally set sail again on April 25th, landing on the Connecticut coast between Norwalk and Fairfield around 5 p.m. that day. It took hours to disembark all the men and supplies. The troops finally began their night march at around 11 p.m. By midday the following day, April 26th, the column was at Reading, about nine miles from Danbury. The men were exhausted. They had been aboard ship for nearly three days, where sleeping was difficult at best. Then they marched all day and all morning, meaning even those who might have been able to get some sleep aboard ship had probably been awake more than 24 hours straight and had marched about 20 miles already. Some accounts indicate that they may have rested for a short time that night, but if they did, it really was only for a few hours. The speed and surprise of the night march paid off with the fact that they had only faced small, scattered resistance from a few local militiamen, nothing that really even slowed down the column. The town of Danbury itself had only about 50 Continental soldiers and maybe 100 militia in the area, no match for the column headed their way. By late afternoon on the 26th, the British reached Danbury. 
Now, the Americans had attempted to evacuate stores from Danbury ahead of the column's arrival. But given the short notice, large amounts of supplies, and lack of manpower, they had removed little before the British got to town. The British quickly scattered the Americans that were there. Seven riflemen inside a home attempted to hold off the British. However, the regulars rushed the house, burned it down with the men still inside. They then set about destroying whatever they could find. In addition to buildings, the British destroyed thousands of barrels of food, as well as tents, shoes, and other military supplies. They also burned at least 10 personal homes. By late that night, the British had destroyed most of what they sought to destroy. It was dark and raining. The men were exhausted. The army camped for the night with plans to complete the destruction the following day. As the British had gone about their destruction that day, word spread quickly across Connecticut. Patriots attempted to respond, but most were too far away. Even as far away as Peekskill, New York, General Alexander McDougall deployed his Continentals just in case the British column attempted to march back overland to New York City. But for the most part, the Continentals and militia were too far away to react at Danbury. The largest group of soldiers nearby was at Fairfield, a few miles up the coast from where the British landed. The local militia commander, General Gold Selleck Silliman of Connecticut Militia, received word of the British landing during the night, hours after the British had begun their march inland. General Silliman quickly assembled a force of about 500 militia and 100 Continentals and set out in pursuit of the column. Later that same night, probably more in the early morning hours of April 26th, word reached New Haven, where two generals received the news. General David Wooster, you may recall, had been a commander at the Quebec campaign. His continual battling with Benedict Arnold, Philip Schuyler, and other top officials had embittered him. When Congress failed to promote him or grant him a command, he had left Quebec to return to Connecticut, putting aside his continental office of brigadier general and operating as a major general of the Connecticut militia. Also in town that same day was his old adversary, Brigadier General Benedict Arnold. Arnold was also embittered, having recently been passed over for promotion to major general, as several more junior brigadiers moved right past him up the ladder to major general. Arnold had returned to Connecticut to deal with a few personal matters. By most accounts, he was then on his way to Philadelphia to tender his resignation to Congress. Whatever resentment these two generals harbored against each other or the Continental Congress, on hearing of the invasion, both leapt on their horses and galloped toward the enemy. The two generals caught up with Silliman and his soldiers sometime on the evening of the 26th, about the same time that Tryon and his regulars were burning Danbury. The Patriots reached Bethel around 11 p.m., about two miles south of Danbury. There, it was pouring rain. The leaders decided not to attack that night, but planned a response for the following day. Arnold and Silliman took about 400 soldiers to Ridgefield. There, they would set up a defensive position, 
which the British would have to contend with on their march back to the coast. Although the Americans did not have enough men to defeat 2,000 British, they hoped at least to delay the column until more militia could reach the area. On their way to Ridgefield, they met up with another 100 militia heading to the battle, giving them total force of about 500. General Wooster took another 200 soldiers to harass the enemy's rear as they marched back toward the coast. Now, back in Danbury, General Tryon received word of the Patriot encampment and prepared to face them the following morning. The British column got on the move early, knowing that delay only provided more time for Patriot militia to join the fight. After the column got underway, Wooster and his harassing force attacked the rear of the column. They managed to capture about 40 prisoners and escape back into the woods. As the column approached Ridgefield, Wooster's force struck the rear again. This time, Tryon had supported his rear with three cannon that the British carried with the column. The Connecticut militia took cover and were reluctant to charge the cannon. General Wooster chastised his men, saying, Come on, my boys, never mind such random shots. A few seconds later, Wooster took a random shot into his stomach. He had to be carried from the field and back to Danbury, where he died from his wounds five days later. The British column pushed on to Ridgefield, where they encountered Arnold's defensive force. Remember, the British still had more than three times as many soldiers as the Americans. Tryon tried a direct assault on the town, supported by his artillery and with overwhelming force. He had sufficient men that he could send flankers on both sides of the American lines at the same time. Arnold remained on the front lines, encouraging his men to hold. The British targeted Arnold. They could not hit him, but they managed to shoot his horse nine times. As the horse collapsed, Arnold found himself trapped underneath his dead or dying horse. As he struggled to free himself, a British soldier rushed up and said Arnold was his prisoner. Arnold responded, not yet, and pulled out a pistol and killed the soldier. He then managed to free himself and escape. The Americans rallied a few miles to the south, joined by two militia artillery units who had just arrived on the scene. The march became a smaller version of the return from Concord, where the British column was taking pot shots from behind every wall and tree. More and more militia were arriving on the scene, making it harder for Tryon's column to continue its march to the sea. When they got within a few miles of their ships, the naval commander waiting for them deployed a few hundred Marines to assist with the withdrawal. Arnold attempted to rally the militia to charge the Marines. His attempts once again made him a target of the enemy. The British killed his new horse and also shot a hole through his jacket collar. Miraculously, though, Arnold himself remained unhurt. Seeing his horse fall, though, convinced most of the militia to flee the field. Arnold had to get away himself to avoid capture. With the Patriot militia scattered, the British column was able to reach the coast and board the ships where they could sail back to New York City. Although the raid successfully hit its target and returned, the British lost 154 killed and wounded, as well as another 40 captured. 
the Americans suffered an estimated 20 killed and 80 wounded. The heated response was enough to convince Howe and his successors not to attempt any further inland raids into Connecticut. One of those American deaths, as I mentioned, was General Wooster, who died a few days after the battle. His last words were allegedly, I am dying, but with a strong hope and persuasion that my country will gain her independence. With that, he went from being an unpopular general to part of the honored dead. In June, Congress voted to build a monument in his honor. They never got around to building the monument, though. It would be nearly 80 years before the state of Connecticut got around to making good on that promise. General Arnold's performance also roused support for him in Congress. They finally promoted him to Major General. And while the honorific was nice, it really didn't mean much in terms of command. Arnold went from being the most senior brigadier general to being the most junior major general. It did not change anything in the chain of command. Congress also awarded Arnold a new horse. On the British side, Tryon's success led to a permanent command as major general in America, as well as a full colonelcy in the regular army. He also took command of British troops on Long Island. Generals Erskine and Agnew rejoined Howe's main army and would ship off with the rest of the army as Howe began his Philadelphia campaign a few months later. Next week, we will join Benjamin Franklin as he finally arrives in Paris. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. This week, I want to thank Tyson Franz once again for his support of the show. Tyson is now my longest supporter at the Robert Morris Circle level, and I very much appreciate his patronage. Tyson runs Liberty and Company, which sells all sorts of American Revolution and founding of the country-themed items. If you're looking for t-shirts, magnets, mugs, glasses, whatever, check out libertyand.co for some great items. Take advantage of free shipping 
and use the code AMREV, that's A-M-R-E-V, to save 20% on your order. Tyson has also volunteered to help out with the logo and some other assistance for History Camp Philadelphia, which is coming on May 2nd, 2020. If you want to meet up with other history enthusiasts in the greater Philadelphia area, you should plan to come to History Camp. I will be a volunteer speaker at the event, along with dozens of others, giving great talks on a wide variety of history topics. Go to historycamp.org for more details. The Danbury Raid that I covered today was another of the fairly minor raids that I've covered for the spring of 1777 because they had a significance beyond the raids themselves. The Danbury Raid had a particular impact on two generals that I've discussed a great deal in our story so far. One of those generals is David Wooster. I've been a bit down on General Wooster in many of my past episodes. He did not seem to get along with many of his fellow officers and did not seem particularly happy with the way he was being treated. He never got over the fact that, after being named a brigadier general at the formation of the Continental Army, he never got promoted to major general. Although he was ranked number four in the Continental Army at its inception, he watched 13 other men get promoted past him even though he thought he should have started the war as a major general. I've tended to portray Wooster as a bit arrogant and perhaps thought better of himself than he really was. But that's probably not hard to say about any of the generals. He also did not do much that was particularly impressive. But one could probably say the same thing about many of his fellow generals who did get promoted past him. In any event, it's hard to attack a guy who, regardless of the politics, was willing to jump on his horse and ride bravely into battle when needed. Even more so when he ended up fighting bravely in battle and in doing so gave his life for his country. At the end of the day, you just can't be critical of a leader who sacrificed everything and remained loyal to the end. I wish I could say the same thing about the other brigadier who fought that day for the Continental Army. General Benedict Arnold was also frustrated by his lack of promotions. He certainly did have an amazing combat leadership record, but also saw himself passed by many arguably lesser generals. Like Wooster, Arnold also jumped on his horse and rode bravely into battle that day, just like he had many times before and after, even despite his complaints with his fellow officers. Had Arnold died at Danbury like Wooster did, we would have remembered Arnold as one of the best combat generals of the war. His heroics on this day would result in him finally getting that promotion to major general, and he would go on to perform many more heroics that were critical to the outcome of the war, as he would fight in many more battles in the years ahead. But Arnold did not die at Danbury or in any of the future battles he fought in. He would go on to commit treason at the highest level and go down in infamy as a result. I hope that's not a spoiler for anyone. In any event, Danbury was another one of those great battle moments for General Arnold before he reached his final and very disappointing conclusion. In any event, if you want to read more about the Danbury Raid, this week's book recommendation is Call to Arms, The Patriot Militia, 
in the 1777 British raid on Danbury, Connecticut, by Stephen Darley. This is one of the few books around that focuses just on the Danbury raid. It's not really a narrative. It's more a collection of biographies of the people involved and short stories about the events that surrounded the raid. Much of it is also reprinted primary documents such as pension applications of the men involved in the raid. If you're looking for some gripping read and exciting narrative, this may not be the book for you. It's more a compilation of records with a little commentary. The book is relatively short, at less than 300 pages total, and was first published in 2015. The author, Stephen Darley, is an amateur historian who spent most of his life working in another field and took up writing in retirement. He's written two other books involving the Revolution. All three involve events where Benedict Arnold was a key player. Mr. Darley is also active in several historical organizations in Connecticut. So, if you're looking for more on the Danbury Raid, take a look at Call to Arms. For my online recommendation this week, there is an older ebook on archive.org called An Account of Tryon's Raid on Danbury by James Case. This is a short booklet from 1927, presumably released for the 150th anniversary of the battle. It's only 56 pages long and includes a biography of General Wooster. If you want more details than I gave in this episode today, but are not looking to buy a whole book, this is a relatively short and free ebook that might be a good solution for you. You can look up the book by searching for An Account of Tryon's Raid on Danbury on archive.org, or simply use the direct link on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.